Good morning, everybody. I know we have some guests with us this morning, so let me do a quick recap of where we are in our current message series, Finding Your Way Back to God. It's based on Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible. Luke 15. We're looking at five awakenings that help us find our way back to God. And the first is the awakening to longing. That we all have these God-given longings to be loved and to love in return, to find a purpose for our life that gives us a reason to get up in the morning and look forward to the days ahead. And a longing to make sense out of life. These longings are from God and can draw us towards God or away from Him, depending on how we try to fulfill these longings. In the second awakening, the awakening to regret, we recognize how our attempts to fulfill these longings on our own often take us further and further away from our Heavenly Father. And we find ourselves trapped in the sorry cycle of longing and regret, making promises we don't keep, uh, living in ruts and in habits that we can't break, until we come to our senses and realize that with God, we can start over which leads to the third awakening that we looked at last week, the awakening to help. In this awakening, we make the turn that begins to lead us home. We admit that we're powerless to fulfill our longings on our own, and we discover that the help we really need has a name, and his name is Jesus. These awakenings are not just something that happen you know, when we initially find our way back to God. Finding your way back to God is, is a life-changing moment, but it's also a life-growing process. And just because we're home doesn't mean that everything is magically fixed. Sometimes, even after we come home, we forget who we are. We lose our identity. And that's why this fourth awakening is so important, the awakening to love, because it holds the secret to our true identity. In the epic story Jesus told about the prodigal son, the son returns home. And if you remember last week, the father sees him on the horizon and his heart is filled with compassion, with, with reckless abandon. He runs out to embrace his son, smothers him with tears of joy. And, and yet look at how the son responds to his father in Luke chapter 15, verse 21. The son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son is literally on the outskirts of town, but spiritually and emotionally, he's still on the outs with his father. He's not worthy to be a son again. He hasn't made it all the way home, not just yet. Even with the father's embrace, he's still living with a mistaken identity. Even after seeing his father run to him with mercy and compassion, after being embraced and bombarded with hugs and kisses, after all these unmistakable signs of the father's love, the son's opinion of himself doesn't catch up with this new reality. He's still stuck in the past. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you feel that way now. You've found your way back to God, but you're struggling with mountains of of pain or regret or memories from your past, old wounds that haven't healed, old thoughts that you can't shake, like a, like a dark cloud of shame that hangs over you. And sometimes you're so burdened with shame, you doubt that God will really accept you. You're, you're not worthy. And so you doubt that God can really embrace you. The wandering son in our story was filled with shame. It's almost as if shame 
was the shadow that followed him home, his constant companion. Every time he looked behind himself, there it was, his shadow of shame. And you know what? Shame can follow us home too. Shame wants to cast a dark shadow over your homecoming with Jesus. Shame wants you to forget who you are and where you belong. Shame whispers to us saying, who are you kidding? You don't deserve this. Shame keeps people stuck in the past. Keeps you from embracing your true new identity. Shame is one of the evil one's greatest weapons because it keeps people paralyzed in the past and prevents them from really engaging with Christ in a healing way. Yes, even after we've come home, we still need this fourth awakening to love. While the son was still shaking his head in shame, insisting, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, the father shouts to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Verse 22. The son's head had to be spinning. Robe, sandals, ring, for me? Each of these gifts from the father was proof of his love. And each conveyed a powerful meaning in that culture. The robe was a symbol of rest. At the father's command, the servants bring the best robe and put it on the son. The best robe in the house is, of course, the father's robe. The father doesn't give him some moth-infested old robe that he had hanging in a closet in the basement. He gives his son his own robe, the best he had. Imagine what it would feel like if you were the son and enveloped by your father's robe to realize you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to prove anything anymore. You don't have to try anymore. You're accepted, period, no fine print, that everything's going to be okay. This is what, it, what home feels like. And then the ring. The ring was a symbol of security. Throughout history, if you were in the presence of a king, you would kneel and kiss his ring because it was a symbol of his power. And so presenting a ring to someone was a sign of being placed in an office of authority. And in the giving of the ring, the father transfers to the son all of his power and authority. The son who was broken, penniless, disobedient, worthy of rejection, now receives the father's full identity as his own. It would be like a father giving his son or daughter a credit card to take care of all of their debts. The, the keys to the car right after you've totally wrecked another one. The father's love doesn't make any sense. The father's love doesn't make sense. The son does not deserve the father's love, and neither do you. And that's why it's called grace. God's love is a gift undeserved and unearned. And that's why as the son looks at the ring, he can finally exhale. He knew he would never go without a meal again or a place to sleep or anything else that he ever wanted. The, the ring sealed his identity as the precious child of the household and brought him security. And finally, the sandals were a symbol of acceptance. In ancient times, the only people who could wear sandals in the house were the homeowners. Slaves and servants, guests often took their sandals off. And I imagine the son was returning home shoeless. He came home destitute, looking more like a hobo than a son. So when the father gave him sandals, he was saying, you're not a slave. You're not an outsider. You're my son, your family. And so these three things told him the truth about his identity. He's not a loser or a stranger. He's not a slave or a hired hand. He's a son again. He is part of the family. That's his new identity. 
when I look at my life, I realize that I am the prodigal. So many times I've lived under the shadow of shame and lost my true identity. I carry around all sorts of regrets. Regrets from past years as well as regrets from last week. So I often don't feel worthy of God's love. And maybe as you walk in here today, you realize you've lost your identity too. That's why even after we find our way home, we still need this awakening to love. Because it's here that we, for the first time, or maybe again, cast off the shadow of shame and realize that God loves us deeply after all. When we awaken to love, when we realize our true identity is as a beloved son or a beloved daughter of our Heavenly Father. God loves me deeply after all. Would you just say that out loud with me, please? God loves me deeply after all. That's powerful. In his excellent book, Abba's Child, author Brennan Manning says it this way. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is illusion. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. Do you know that? Do you understand that you're loved, accepted? So many people struggle with God's acceptance even after they become Christian. God longs for every one of us to awaken to this, his unconditional love. My hope is that when we walk out of here today, every one of us will walk confidently in the truth of this new identity. All throughout scripture, we see reminders of this identity that God gives to us when we come home. Just one, 2 Corinthians 15, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. Your past is the past. You're, you're a new creation. Your sin's forgiven. Your record is clean. You're not condemned. You can say goodbye to shame. You can never be separated from God's love. You are always going to be God's child. You will always be God's child. You are home. And as we continue our journey back to God, we have to push back against anything that tells us we are not accepted by the Father. I love the statement made by Henry Nouwen in his book, Life of the Beloved. He says, every time, every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, as strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I can't feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in this everlasting belief. This is what awakening to God's love looks like. It means holding on to this new identity in the depths of your being. It changes how you think about God, about yourself and others. It changes who you are. It changes how you feel. You now know that without a doubt that you have a heavenly Father who loves you as you are and not as you should be. You can stop saying, I don't deserve this, and start saying, God loves me deeply after all. I told this story a few years ago, but it fits so well, I'm going to tell it again. Every summer, Donna and I spent time at a lakeside cottage in Vermont that's been in her family for generations. And a few years ago, we had this completely unplanned but unbelievable two-hour conversation with a woman who lives, uh, one of the neighbors on the lane. Her name is Susie, and as children, she and Donna spent a lot of time together during the summers when they'd both come to Vermont on vacation. They were summer friends, you know, for many years as children. But after high school, you know, they drifted apart. Would only see each other if they happened to be there at the same time. And 
Of course, we started hearing stories about Susie's troubled life. When she came on the porch and sat down and talked, she confirmed almost all of them. How she'd become a, a party girl in college and an alcoholic. How alcohol had messed up her the whole rest of her life. But she was now so proud because she was three years sober with, through AA. And she was still in the painful process of trying to, to undo the damage that she had done to her family. You know, the failed marriage, the, the siblings who still wouldn't speak to her. And she was coping with the recent suicide of one of her brothers who had struggled with his own demons for many years. And somehow she knew of our faith in Christ and she wanted to talk about how important her higher power was to her staying sober. And she said her higher power was Jesus, but we could just tell that she really didn't know much about him. She had some kind of a vague faith in Christ, but it was like she was just hanging on by her fingernails. She mentioned that she kept in mind in her mind, a, a painting of Jesus she had once seen in her mother's room. She tried to describe it as Jesus standing with his arms open wide, and she wondered if I knew the painting she was talking about. And I thought, you know, there are like a million paintings of Jesus. And, you know, I said I couldn't really narrow it down, but I had some pictures of Jesus on my computer that I use in, you know, the PowerPoint presentations. So maybe I had one that was similar. So I got out my laptop and we went through a few pictures with, with no luck. And then I said, well, let me just show you a couple of my favorites, uh, especially by the artist Rembrandt. So I showed her Rembrandt's famous portrait of Jesus. And she was taken by the way it captured Jesus' humanity so well, so calm and peaceful, but just with a hint of sadness. And then I showed her Rembrandt's equally famous painting of the prodigal son. And she looked at me completely blank, and said, I don't know what that is. I don't know that story. And I thought, wow, we, we really do have to start at the beginning here. So I went through the whole deal, how Jesus tells three stories about lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and fi the final story about a lost son. I explained how the son insulted and shamed the father, how every one of Jesus' Middle Eastern listeners would have expected the father just to slap him across the face and kick him out of the family, but instead, you know, I told her how the father gives him his property, off the son goes, spends it like a drunken sailor, but the money runs out, his party and friends disappear, young man is left penniless, how the only job he can get is slopping hogs on a pig farm, and if you're Jewish, that's as low as you can go, that is the absolute bottom rung. So I explained how the son finally wises up, decides to go home, face the music, the son expected to be greeted with contempt, you know, the pointed finger, the I told you so lecture, the I knew you'd come crawling back kind of lecture. And then I told her how Jesus surprised his listeners once again by describing how the father sees the son a long way off, how he hikes up his robe, runs to him, so filled with compassion, throws his arms around his son, kisses him, sobbing with joy. How his father didn't even wait to hear the son's carefully rehearsed apology, just wraps his arms around the son and welcomed him home, no questions asked. And then I looked at her and I said, Susie, that's how God feels about you. And something amazing happened, something I've never seen before. Susie started to cry. And I don't mean that a little tear appeared in the corner of her arm. I mean, it was like she had squirt guns hidden behind each eyeball. And the tears just literally shot out from her eyes. I mean, just gushed. I mean, her tears were the size of pearls rolling down her cheeks. 
these amazing tears of joy. I can't describe it any other way. And when she finally kind of got a hold of herself, she looked at me and she said, you know, that's what all us alcoholics are really looking for, unconditional love. I thought, wow, Susie got it. How about you? Isn't that what we're all really looking for? God's unconditional love. Do you know that God welcomes you? That God loves you like that and that he accepts you? That through Christ you are his beloved daughter, his beloved son. That's the awakening to love. One way you can know that you've experienced this love of Christ is to ask yourself this question. Have you ever felt the squeeze? Have you ever felt the squeeze? And what I mean by that is that there's a common thread that runs through each of these three stories Jesus tells about lost things. There's a squeeze. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, the sheep is confused, scared, maybe not so sure what the shepherd's intentions are, worried that maybe it's caused so much trouble the shepherd is thinking mutton stew for dinner. The, sheep's, the, the shepherd's got to grab that sheep, and even while it's trying to get away, even while it struggles, the shepherd puts the squeeze on that sheep. He's got to hold it tight so it doesn't run away again. Then there's the poor woman. When she finds that coin, you bet she grabbed onto that thing and held it so tight in her fist it would never get misplaced again. She had the squeeze. And the father, when he comes to the son, he doesn't give him some polite, awkward, you know, half hug. I mean, he wraps his arms around him in a man-sized bear hug, a crush the air out of your lungs and crack a couple ribs kind of death grip. Each parable ends with a squeeze. Have you felt God's mercy squeeze your heart? Have you felt God's love embrace you, receive you? If you have, then you know God has been searching for you. A while ago, I was walking my dog, Bailey, on Springfield Avenue, and we ran into another dog and uh, owner coming the other way. Bailey's a Labrador retriever, so he's kind of a big dog, and the other dog was some little kind of terrier. Well, they got excited greeting one another, and the little terrier just started jumping up and down and kind of twisting against its leash. And then in an instant, its head just popped right out of its collar, and it was running around loose and jumping while we're standing next to a very busy street with lots of cars zooming by. And I'm thinking, this dog's going to run into traffic and get hit. So I dropped my leash, I stepped on it, and as quickly as I could, I bent down and scooped up that little dog with one arm around its belly and the other around its neck. Now, it wasn't happy about this. It wanted to play. I don't know, it didn't know if I was that I was trying to protect it. So it's squirming like crazy trying to get loose. And I remembered something that I think I saw once on the Animal Planet TV show, The Dog Whisperer, about how to calm a dog down. And so I just slowly increased the pressure of my squeeze on that little pooch. Sort of like an anaconda, you know? Just a slow squeeze, a gentle pressure to let her know I wasn't going to hurt her and I wasn't going to let her go. And you know what? That little dog just went limp. It stopped its squirming. Wrapped in my arms, it got to the point of surrender. The little dog had to submit to the strength of my squeeze. And that's the issue with us. Will we submit to him? Or will we squirm? When God puts this squeeze of this unconditional love on you, will you squirm or will you surrender to him? God may put, be putting the squeeze of unconditional love on you right now. 
even if you're not sure you want it, and if you feel it, when you relax in his arms, you relax in this embrace of grace. So many of our anxieties and fears and worries would just vanish if we could only relax in his squeeze, that embrace of grace. For many of us, we weren't searching for him when he found us. We didn't even know we were lost until he found us. Maybe we were even trying to get away from him when he put the squeeze on us. But once you felt it, you know that God is not letting go of you. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you alone. He's putting the squeeze on you right now. And he won't ever let you go. So awaken to his unconditional love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm just so grateful that you wrap us in your eternal arms. That you welcome us as we are, not as we should be. You welcome us, Lord. No questions asked, no fine print. We belong to you through your redeeming love. That's why you went to the cross, so that we could be called your daughters and your sons, fully restored into relationship with you. Not perfect, not completely fixed, full of fallible things that we'd still do, full of sins that we still commit, Lord, but eternally loved and always embraced. Thank you for the squeeze that you put upon our hearts. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.